Hello and welcome to That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. I hope that you've all had a good week. I am recording this on, uh, what date is it today? The 12th of August, 21. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's the summer. My kids are not at school or childcare. <laughs> the studio is really busy. So everything is uh, a little fraught at the moment. Is fraught the right word? Anyway, it feels nice and busy. Um, and so just trying to balance all of the uh, the usual things. Um, anyway, this week I'm chatting with Gerald Chevin, who was the engineer at AdVision Studios um, and worked with tons of cool bands and artists, The Yardbirds, The Who, T-Rex, he worked on War of the Worlds, uh, recorded the Avengers theme tune, worked with The Move, David Bowie, Eddie Kramer, Jimi Hendrix, John Lennon, I mean, just absolutely tons. And... Um, yeah, just loads of people. Um, one of the things that is most interesting about him is he was one of the in-house engineers at Lennon Studio in Tittenhurst Park. Um, yeah, which is really, really special. So it's a it's a really cool episode, and he's got a, a lot of cool stories. Um, so I hope you enjoy. Here we go, Gerald Chevin. It seemed to me when I was um, sort of a lot younger, Birmingham was churning out tons and tons and tons of music and um, uh, sort of like famous, now famous um, musicians, people like Jeff Lynne and uh, Roy Wood, etc., etc. And so I spent a lot of time in Birmingham. Um, and, uh, you know, but again, in those days, um, it was a lot more difficult to... Um, it was a lot more difficult to get there because there weren't, from such a long time ago, there weren't any motorways. Yeah. So, uh, you know, but look, um, that, that was then. And, uh, you know, I'm still in touch with um, quite a few of these people. But unfortunately, um, you know, a lot of people I know, or knew, I should say, are no longer with us. And um, it's very, very difficult to, um, to, to um, you know, sort of like... Uh, Sort of uh, I was when I started in, in 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 sound engineering business. I was incredibly young. I was still going to college, and um, so that's why if you see some of those pictures, I look like a, a sort of child bride or something. <laughs> yeah, completely naive um, for a while anyway. But um, you know, so here I am still around, but a lot of my peers are not still around, unfortunately, and. Um, but this happens, and I think this is one of the reasons why people who are interested in in the sort of like times of uh, 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 you know all that time ago um, want to kind of try and jog my memory to see what I can remember. But I understand that you're into 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 drumming in a big way. Yeah, so that's my. Um, I mean, that's how I make my living. Yeah. Um, oh right, right. And uh, I kind of so it's all. Uh, so I uh, so I finished college and I went and joined a uh, a Beatles show um, and then I I've always been interested in studios and worked a lot in studios and wanted to set my my own studio up um, so I sort of started with the with the glorified home studio style thing um, and started getting a few um, kind of remote working sessions in and just doing things for friends and I I quickly realised that everybody. Um, everybody that was booking me liked the fact that I was into 
the 60s style playing um and it and Ringo essentially and I never really I didn't give it much thought that's just sort of what I'm into and what I play um so yeah just decided to to sort of make that the selling point of what I'm doing essentially um and now right, it's well. a, yeah since since the pandemic's happened um I've cut I'm I'm not going to go back to gigging anywhere near as much and I'm just doing the studio full time now which uh, which I love and yeah I've got two, well, you, two little girls that I can studio or, or do you rent a space or is it in your house um I rent a space so I've got um uh, the, the village I live in has a, a brass band called, it's called Kipax where I live. And we've got a brass band here that's two, 230, I think. Um, huh? Yeah, extremely old. <laughs> it's a proper a coal mining band. Um, so I rent the old custodian's flat of the, who, they have a working men's club that they own. And I rent the custodian's flat upstairs. Um, and that's, yeah, that's my space. So my, my rent helps support the band. Um Oh, excellent! Yeah, excellent. so it's a really community orientated thing, and and uh, yeah, yeah, it's lovely. My father in law plays in the band, and I've played in the band many years ago. Um, and yeah, I love it. I, it's a really, it's about a mile from my house, so I can walk there every morning. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, I, I know. Dad was, I mean, he hated the music I was involved with, but he loved brass band music. And um, well, it's like all parents. I mean, you know, um, my son um, when we were in the car. He said, I don't want to listen to this rubbish. I, I want to listen. To, I said, when you've got your own car, which obviously you've got now, I said, you can listen to anything you like. But while you're in my car, you have to listen to what I want to hear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, but now, of course, with, I mean, I've, I'm old enough to have grandchildren and they, they now can don't even listen to the radio in the car. They just have their own music uh, buds, you know, from their uh, from their phones. So they listen to whatever they want, whenever they want to listen to it. Well, yeah. And, Completely different to anything that I like. Um, although, you know, in the garden, um, a friend of mine bought me a plant, a rose, and it was actually called um, a whiter shade of pale. Oh, cool. And, and it, it's blooming in the garden even as we speak. And my grandson said, I understand you, you were the recording engineer on that record. I don't even think he knew what he really meant. But uh, I said, well, yeah. He said, oh, that's why you've got the plant. I said, well, kind of, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's interesting. And I, I do actually meet up with people like, I don't know if you've heard of a guy called Matthew Fisher. He was the keyboard player in Harem. Yes. And we met up for lunch, or, uh, well, before the pandemic. I mean, everything is uh, pre-pandemic these days. And... Um, we hadn't seen each other for an awful long time. And I said, well, how the hell are we ever going to know what we look like? And <laughs> I'm sure we'll figure it out. But, you know, we have changed because people do. But we did recognize each other and we had an interesting, um, interesting lunch. And the problem was that, you know, he had to sue um, the original members of the band to get uh, royalties for the composing of the, because a lot of it is to do with, with his organ, keyboard playing. Yeah. And uh, he went to the high court seven times, which is real determination. Absolutely. And actually, he actually won, um, and they awarded him uh, ten million pounds, right there and then, and then ongoing royalties from there. But no, nothing going before that. So when he, when he sort of explained all this to me and all the woes, I said, "Well, you know, guess who's paying for lunch?" <laughs> <laughs> but there, uh, yeah. 
you know, um, it, it's interesting to, the trouble is, I, I, I don't know when you're going to start your podcasting, but I'll tell you some interesting, well, I think they're interesting stories. They may be boring as hell, but, um, you know. Well, uh, I've started recording already. If you don't, I, 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 when you started talking right. about Birmingham, I thought that was anything. a nice opportunity to begin. All right. I better not say anything derogatory about anybody then. <laughs> so, um, no, well, I, I was going to tell you about drummers, um, and I'll, I'll be very careful what I say. So one of the tops, there were really only six top recording studios in, 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 in central London. If you exclude the ones that were owned by the major record labels, like used to be called EMI, and then they changed the name, of course, to Abbey Road for obvious reasons. Yeah. Decker Recording Studios, which doesn't exist anymore. Pie Recording Studios, PYE, that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, CBS. And chapels, chapels, the, the music publishers. Yes. And um, then there, there were like independent studios. And um, one of the top independent studios was called Lansdowne. I don't know if you've ever heard of Lansdowne. Just from my um, research, yeah. I don't know much about uh, it. Lansdowne was a top London studio. They were based in Holland Park. And um, they they recorded um, with a guy who was the chief engineer, um a friend of mine, a guy called Adrian Kerridge, um, he was the sound engineer on um, all of the Dave Clark Five stuff. Oh wow! And so if you if you're interested in drumming, then you know that's the. And what happened was about again, I don't know, two three years ago. Unfortunately, um, I've just been out for lunch with him. I only seem to go. Out, I never go out for dinner anymore. I'm too old. <laughs> but um, I went out for lunch with um, Adrian and a couple of other guys, and. Um, I was persuading him to write a book um, about his experiences because I said, once you've gone, then, you know, who the hell's going to know anything about it? Because his mentor was a guy called Joe Meek, who yes. I'm sure you've heard of. Absolutely, and, yeah. Um, yeah, Joe Meek used to employ people like another very well-known drummer, Clem Catini. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, yeah, Clem Catini, he, yeah. He was a session musician and he played drums on all of these Joe Meek things like you know, Telstar and all that kind of stuff. And um, anyway, so Adrian, um, unfortunately, uh, in the time uh, after I'd had lunch with him and about three or four months later, he, he passed away. So I decided uh, with a friend of mine who also used to work at Lansdowne to, um, to go to the funeral, which was in Marlow. Um, and so... We drove there. Well, he drove, actually, my friend. And uh, as we're getting out of the car, bloke said, Gerald, John. And it was Dave Clark, <laughs> right? And he was doing the eulogy to this guy, Adrian. And we were walking to, towards the um, the church. And he said to me, you know, Gerald, he said, it's really sad. We're just the Dave Clark too now. Oh. And he took that. It's very, very sad. Um but he, he did very, very well. He was a very clever guy, had his head screwed on financially. And, um, I mean, I think you may or may not know that he bought the rights to the old 60s TV show, Ready, Steady, Go. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, so anytime anybody wants to show a clip, guess who pockets the money? <laughs> wow. And in those days, I knew a lot of people that were terribly, terribly excited to have a contract they never read the damn thing because you know oh i've got a record contract i must be important (laughs) and you know i know people who had number one hit records right and in those days to get a number one hit record you would sell 
an awful lot of copies, right? I mean, you know, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of copies. Yeah. And, you know, if the guy made 400 quid, it would be a miracle. They didn't make any money um, because they were being, um, I'm not sure I'm supposed to say this word, but they were being screwed left, right, and center by all of their tier of management. They were making all the money, and the poor sap who was performing and writing the music had a contract. Wow. Um, And, you know, uh, and it was really only because of people like Brian Epstein who um, realized that there was a lot more money to be made by the artists um, from from a record deal than the peanuts that they were getting paid, that people then began to to, to start, you know, reading or having people read the contracts for them. And, you know, they weren't being screwed quite as much. But uh, it it was a well-known fact that there were a lot of, and I won't mention anybody, but there were a lot of agents out there that were, you know, maybe rightly so or not, but they were only interested in, in, in what they could get out of it. They couldn't care less about the artistic um, uh, product that, 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 that these guys were making. They were just looking at the, in those days, it was pounds, shillings and pence and looking at the uh, looking at their income and not listening to the music. Music was secondary to how much money they were going to make. <laughs> and I saw this, I saw this an awful lot, you know. Um, and in the, at the beginning of everything, when I started, I started, I, I, I what I did, I, I'd always been interested in, in music and I was also very, very interested in technology. I, I built my first radio at the age of eight. Wow. So I, I learned a lot about electronics and um, when um, when I left, uh, when I was about to leave school, um, they in those days, I'm not sure what they do now, but they had somebody called a careers officer and I said, what I'd like to do is I'd like to get into the recording industry and uh, what should I do? Well, nobody ever asked him this before. He had no clue. He didn't even know what the recording industry was. <laughs> he said, oh, well, you must you must go to college. You must go to college and get yourself a degree. Oh, I thought, okay. So I went to uh, university and I uh, read electronics um, because that's what I knew a lot about. Um, and in my last year, I decided that I really, really wanted to try and get into the music business. I mean, not as a musician, but, you know, as a, as a recording engineer. And I really didn't know what to do. So in those days, we didn't have um, computers. And the only way you could ever find out anything about anything was to use um, the telephone directory. It wasn't even yellow pages. So I looked up under recording studios in London because I lived just outside London and I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll write. I had to physically write letters and post them in the snail mail. It's an anathema these days, but I had to do that. And so I thought, well, I'll just do one at a time. So I wrote to the first studio, which uh, was letter A, and it was called AdVision. And blow me down, within five days, I got a letter back from them. Yeah, we'd like to interview you. I thought, what? <laughs> so I never wrote any more letters um, because I had to use a typewriter and you know, if you're not a typist, it, it, it's painful. Anyway, so you know, you had to you had to use something called Tipex every time you made a mistake. So he had a letter covered in white blank out stuff, and well, not like today, where you know, when you just can just literally take something onto your phone and it turns it into a document. Yeah. So anyway, I toddled. It was in Bond Street, New Bond Street, and that 
Um, where I lived in those days, I was also on the central line. And so, you know, wherever you go on the central line, you're you're not too far. So 40 minutes away, I was in the centre of town. And I went for an interview and um, I was just a geeky young kid of about 18. And, um, you know, they said to me, well, you know, what makes you think? So I said, well, you know, this, that and the other. Okay. And um, blah, 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 blah. I said, there's only one condition I've got is that I need a day a week off to carry on with my studies so I can finish my degree. So the boss of the studio, who's Australian guy, said, okay, we can do that for you. So I started there, and I started basically as a, as a glorified tea boy, right? I wasn't even sure <laughs> how to make it. Um, but anyway, I soon, soon learned that. And then, you know, you get to meet every day, not like on a personal basis, but you get to see everybody that's famous and initially it was like my eyes were bulging out my head and I couldn't my head was spinning because all these famous people kept coming in because as the name implies AdVision didn't just record music it also used to do um jingles you know for um uh, we, we had a lot of um commercial radio stations um you know mainly pirate ones in those days and uh, we would record jingles for various products and you'd have voiceovers of really really famous people because you needed you know the, the the general public needed to recognize who it was that was doing the talking so we had people like for sherry we had a guy called awesome wells who's wow. pretty famous yeah. um then we had people in like um comedians like sid james who was in all the carry-on films yeah uh, and hattie jakes who was also in the carry-on films <laughs> and then we had um the funniest bloke i think i ever met um we did one for Petra, paraffin, that was what it was, paraffin. And it was a guy called Kenneth Williams, who was um, a really well-known comedian. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but he was, in all, uh, he was in all the carry-on films as well. And he was with Tony Hancock. Anyway, we, we couldn't work. He made us laugh so much that we, just, <laughs> we were holding our stomachs trying to remember what to do. But he was very, very funny. Um, and then, of course, you know, we, in the evening, because what you tend to find is with musicians, there isn't such a thing, as far as I can see, as a musician that's creative between nine and five. They all start doing all their creative stuff about sort of eight o'clock to three o'clock in the morning. I don't know why that is, but it always <laughs> seems quite. So we would, um, uh, the way it worked is that when we were um, working in the studio, if we worked over past midnight, I mean, I can say this now because uh, everyone isn't around. We would, if we worked past midnight, we would get double time. Um, we would get a taxi home and um, a free meal. Wow. So about five to 12, pretty much every day, something appeared to go wrong with the equipment which always took us 15 minutes to fix. <laughs> and so, um, you know, uh, that, that's effective. That's how we lived. We, we, we didn't really use our, our um, salary to, to live on. We used all these expenses for the meals and the cabs because although we were allowed to have cabs, we used to take it in terms to drive each other home. doesn't matter where we lived. It was just money in our pocket because petrol in those days was so cheap, it, it really didn't matter. Yeah. So, um, you know, and then one day... Um, having worked in the studio for about six months or so, they promoted me from um, making the tea to what they called tape jockey. Yeah. Um, and uh, we used to have these um, initially with these um, tape machines that um, 
the company that uh, supplied them was actually financed by the singer Bing Crosby, oh, wow. who I'm sure you Ampex. Have you heard of Ampex? I have, yeah. Well, he decided um, just after the war that he would uh, invest in Ampex, and Ampex became a big, big corporation. And most studios um, bought Ampex tape machines, and they started off um, usually four-track machines, which was a very big deal in those days. And so, you know, I, I was the tape jockey, and then one day my boss, whose name um, was was he, unfortunately he's no longer with us anymore. His name was Roger Cameron. Yes. And if you ever, if you ever listen to uh, any of the Yardbirds album, they actually made an album called Roger the Engineer. <laughs> so he was pretty, uh, you know, he he was the top of the tree guy. And um, one day he rang up. I, I used to get to the studio early, about eight o'clock in the morning, and set the sessions up, you know, for what we were doing that day. And he rang up and he said, "I'm not well." what do you mean? He said, I've got a terrible cold and I just cannot make it in. I said, well, what's going to happen? He said, we all have to do it. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you have to do it. You must know what to do by now. <laughs> so I thought, well, what? Anyway, so um, we had this, um, the way it usually works is we, we, we had the session uh, in the morning and um, this, this um, orchestra came in and it was, uh, conducted by a guy called Harry Stoneham, who used to be on the Michael Parkinson show. Um, and they brought this singer in, uh, whose name was, um, it wasn't really, but his stage name was Crispy and St. Peter's. And we, we, we did this track and it was called, uh, Pied Piper and it got to number one. Um, I don't know if you've ever even heard it, but it got to number one. And that made a big difference to me as a person because, people would then ring the studio up and ask for me to do their session. Wow. Because at the magic touch or something, you see. <laughs> and um, so that that was pretty good because two weeks before Harry Stoneham came in, um, when I was the engineer, I was the guy who used to help him carry his Hammond organ in. So all of a sudden, there I am being like a porter to actually running the studio. It, it was just... And he looked at me like, what the hell's going on? I said, well, Roger's ill. There's nothing we can do about it. He said, all right, <laughs> let's hope it works. So it did. And, um, you know, I, I, I then became, we, we did quite a lot of stuff. I mean, I, I, I um, worked with, I don't know how you rate drummers, but um, I did work with The Who quite a lot. And Keith Moon, um, he was an incredible character. Yes. Uh, I, I mean, he, I thought he was a great drummer. And um, they came in and we did a few tracks. And our studio was based in Bond Street, as I told you. And we were obviously in the basement. And we were above a very, very high club, sorry, below a very, very high class menswear shop. So they were above us and we were in the studio. Now, the studio was pretty well soundproofed. Mm. And um, so when the Who start playing, I mean, that's why Roger Daughtry is, is stone deaf because they're so loud. It's crazy. <laughs> anyway, the, 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 the soundproofing really wasn't up to it, but then I don't think any soundproofing would have been up to it. And, um, you know, everything they played at number 11, pretty much like the spinal tap thing. And um, the, the guy, the manager from the um, posh men's store came to see me and he said, we can hear this noise in, in, in the shop. And I said, oh, he said, can you get them to play it quieter? I said, well, 
uh, he didn't know who they were. I said, um, do you like a group called The Who? He said, oh, yeah, they're great. I said, do you want tickets, free tickets to their next concert? And he looked at me like it was manna from heaven. He said, oh, yes, please. I said, well, I'll tell you what, ignore the noise and you, you go upstairs and carry on your day. I will get you tickets to their next concert. How does that sound? <laughs> it, went, it all happened. I was only a young kid at the time. And um, so then I went into the into the studio and um, I said, look, uh, the guy upstairs has complained that it's all a bit too loud. Any chance of you turning it down? Well, of course, the second word was off. And uh, <laughs> so they didn't. And then we did the backing track for something or other. And, uh, the, you know, the way you worked in those days, um, you did the backing track and then you overdubbed the vocals afterwards. So in the, uh, there's, there's a vocal booth and there was Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey doing the overdubs. And so um, I'm playing the track back to them and uh, on their headphones. And I can see them um, singing in the booth, but I couldn't hear anything. So I'm kicking everything and wondering why nothing works. And this console, by the way, was made of valves, vacuum tubes. It yeah. wasn't transistorized. And I thought, what the hell's going on here? So I went into the into the vocal booth and I pushed all the microphones to make sure there were no loose connections. And they're looking at me. And so I came out, same thing. So this is crazy. So I went back into the booth and I realized that they'd been taking the mickey out of me. I'll use that word. But they'd been taking the mickey out of me by miming. So, <laughs> and you know they were just taking the mickey out of me for, for asking him to play a bit quieter um, anyway then we then we all toddled around we used to there was a pub around the corner we all used to go to it was called the Bunch of Grapes and you know everybody that was famous uh, in the 60s in the music business would always you know have a break in the Bunch of Grapes so you know I went around there with them and uh, we all sort of sitting there having a drink etc etc and the next thing I know is there's a big fight going on between Keith Moon and Pete Townsend. That's a fight. I mean, a real fight. And they're actually throwing beer over each other. So the manager of the pub, who's some great big bloke, he said, and that's it. He said, you're all banned. Get out. Not you, Gerald, he said. What's <laughs> going on? But uh, that, that was quite funny. And um, so he, he, was, he was a real character. And I think that, you know, when you meet people like that, and as part of your job, right? I mean, this is the job that I elected to do. I mean, I could have been, uh, I could have been an accountant or, or, or a lawyer. Yeah. But where's, where's the fun in that? You know, this was great. This was, you know, I was doing something that every single day was, was, was a new beginning. And it was being recorded, assuming it was a successful thing. It was being recorded for posterity. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, as, as I've said before, um, you know, I've got friends who did become accountants and, you know, they may have done a set of accounts, say, 50 years ago. 50 years ago, somebody will come up to me and say, oh, white a shade of power, what a fantastic record. Nobody will go up to them and say, oh, that set of accounts you did 50 years ago was blew my mind. Because <laughs> So, you know, there was a big difference. So I, I really, really loved my job. And, you know, people, a lot of people I knew um, that were working, and perhaps even now, they don't work um, because they love the job. They primarily work to earn money. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if I, I was loving my job. I was earning money, of course. But, you know, what, what a fantastic way to live. And I realized even then, 
how lucky I was to, to, to actually be involved at the sharp end. And in those days, again, I said to you, there were about six studios in, in London that made the majority of all the sort of like top um, 10 records. Um, apart from the 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 the, 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 the um, big indi- uh, the big um, you know sort of like uh, EMI etc. Yeah. And all of us engineers um, were friends, you know. And we weren't. There was so much going on that you know one studio wouldn't take away uh, another studio's business because there was tons of business. I mean, there was almost more. And studios were opening up all the time because you know people who had a little bit of money to invest thought, so, "Oh, this is a good way to do things." And um, I remember um, I was working with... um So I feel a little bit mean that I've faded it out there, but that seemed like a a sensible place uh, to move on. Um, So the second part of that conversation will be coming out next week. Um, I've also had... uh, I've had another, I spoke with Gerald again a couple of weeks after this conversation um, and I think I'm going to release that as a a bit of a bonus, some bonus audio in a a couple of months time. Um, There's a few little golden nuggets of information in there. Um, So yes, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, That just leaves me to say, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do that. My email address is joe at allyouneedisdrums. If you'd like to support the podcast by buying an enamel mug, you can do that at allyouneedisdrums.com. Um, thank you very much to Joe Kane and David Henshaw for the music and the artwork for this podcast. And I hope you all have a fantastic week and I will see you next week for the second part of my conversation with Gerald Chevin. Goodbye! Goodbye!